Dan Rather tells the story of taking over for Walter Cronkite on the CBS Evening, Evening News. There was this habit that Cronkite had of signing off. In fact, there are a lot of uh, anchormen in those days and radio personalities that had famous sign-offs. Uh, those of you that remember uh, listening to Paul Harvey on the radio, this is Paul Harvey. Good day. Um, Walter Cronkite's uh, sign-off uh, was, and that's the way it is. Now you imagine a young Dan Rather getting kind of run up through the ranks, coming through some sports broadcasts and other things in Houston, and then turning around and having to fill in those shoes. So he tried uh, to come up with something that was really meaningful to him, and he remembered uh, a phrase that his dad would often say to him. He would say, courage. And so for a little bit, uh, Dan Rather would just end the evening news by looking at the camera and saying, courage. The producer said, um, stop that. <laughs> and Dan had grown strangely accustomed to warm food and a bed and a consistent paycheck, and so he did. One of my mentors in seminary, Steve Brown, um, one, of our, one of my preaching mentors, uh, he would tell young seminary students this. He would say, uh, don't ever end your sermon with a prayer. Now, it's kind of the way we do it here because we have an offering coming up and I have to get you to close your eyes. Kidding, we're also praying because we believe in prayer. It's a joke. Everybody okay? You good? Sometimes my wit's a little dry. Um, but I also need to get you to close your eyes. Uh, any rate, Steve said, don't close with a prayer because you're going to be tempted to fix whatever you screwed up in your sermon in your prayer. Not that we do that or anything. Maybe sometimes. So Steve's ending would be, you think about that. Amen. You just walk off. It's fantastic. No heads bowed, no eyes shut. You think about that, walks away. It's fantastic. Steve also smokes a pipe, and uh, he has a great bass voice that um, I think could rattle the foundation of buildings, but um, he makes me sound like a tenor. Coming to the end of Philippians, Paul is choosing his signing off, closing words carefully. He doesn't know for sure, if he's ever going to get to see his church. He doesn't know if he's going to die at the hands of Caesar's government in Rome. He doesn't know if he would even make the voyage back. He's going to choose careful words. So over the next couple of weeks, as we're looking at Paul's careful closing words, we're going to encounter a lot of things in the text that are really familiar, but really important for us to hear. This morning, Paul is looking at beginning his closing by addressing a really delicate pastoral situation. There is division in the church, and it has caused great trouble in the church, so much so that something has to be said about it, and it can't wait on the off chance that Paul doesn't make it back. So we're going to consider Paul's closing and listen to his pastoral words as we look this morning at Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Stand if you would. 
Philippians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Aodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, in an economy of words, would the words spoken today be words that point to your word of life? Would they get to the point? And would they accomplish their work of changing us to be more like Jesus? For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Paul is dealing with a delicate situation. Paul is required to speak some tender words. And these tender words have to be spoken in order to address a delicate interpersonal conflict that's going on. So it's important for us to see not only um, the way he chose his words, but it's important for us to consider the model um, as we diligently strive to follow Jesus. Now, here's the deal. The, The conflict that Paul was dealing with may not be your conflict. It may not be mine. And honestly... As you can see from the witness of Scripture, interpersonal conflict has always been a thing. It's always been a part of the world. It's always been a part of the church, and it's always been a danger to God's people. So we need to pay attention to what Paul is saying and the the commands, the exhortations that Paul is giving to his church. He's saying that these are things, there are three things in the text that we must do together as the people of God, because of the joy that is before us and inside of us and that we are yet still striving for because of Jesus. The three things are this, be steadfast, be one, and be helpful. Be steadfast, be one, and be helpful. What does he mean by being steadfast? Here's the, here's the first command. Because you have been gripped by Christ... And we are all together in the same race, heading towards the same prize. And we're still not done yet. Stand together. Be steadfast together. But when Paul's talking about being steadfast, he's not talking about just have a lot of stamina and have a lot of gumption to keep moving. He's saying stay together. Stand together in the Lord. All of these commands. 
everything that Paul's telling us in this text are flowing as a therefore in our text. That therefore is pointing to the reality that because Jesus has gripped us, because Jesus has has infused us with his resurrection life, and because Jesus has the power, verse 21 of chapter 3, to enable him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, we are rescued, redeemed, ransomed, and are being remade by the sovereign and gracious hand of Jesus. And what Paul's talking about is that though he has just said that there are some that he knew of with tears that are now walking as enemies, he is once again soaring here as he is speaking of his church, his beloved church, his beloved people. Those whom he loves and longs for his joy and his crown. Now, steadfastness, stamina, can certainly come when you are agreed on a set of facts or ideas. Now, um, how many of you enjoy going to PTA meetings? Weird. And yet the PTA still manages to meet, right? And they elect officers and they, um, they dole out tasks by guilting you into doing them. And they have you sell wrapping paper and whatever else it is that we do these days. I don't know. Are we still selling wrapping paper? Is that a thing? Okay, great. Good. There is a stamina that those involved in their child's school's PTA end up mustering up because we love our children, darn it. And we have a common goal of helping teachers and kids have a great and thriving school environment. If you homeschool, if you go out to eat, you're having a PTA meeting, right? I'll work on a better homeschool joke. None of us really enjoy, we don't love and long for the next PTA meeting. We don't love and long for the next fundraising project. We don't go, oh my gosh, I can't wait for someone to butcher parliamentary procedure at a PTA meeting again. Common goals will only reinforce your bonds so far. But what has happened with us as the church is that we have union in Christ. And that means that we're not only knit together by our resurrected Savior, uh, with our resurrected Savior, but we're also now knit together one with another. We are bound together more closely and more vitally than sharing even the same DNA And the metaphor of of crown is interesting, right? Because Paul's not envisioning a single crown getting placed on the victor of the end of an individual race. It's almost as if Paul is envisioning a gigantic crown being placed upon the entire church. That there is a crown that we are going to enjoy and share together as the church after having run and completed the race well. 
So let me ask you this. How are you envisioning that great finish line of the race? Right? How are you envisioning that great finish line of the race? Let's, let's do a thought exercise for a minute. Um, I want you to imagine for a second that finish line, that great day when we are standing before Jesus. Who is there with you? Who are you looking for in the crowd? Who are you looking for in the crowd? Who's a part of that scene? I'm pretty sure there are probably some likely suspects. There's probably relatives and dear loved ones that have since gone on to glory that you long to see again. For some of you that have experienced the tragedy of the loss of a child, perhaps it's awaiting to see your child. Maybe for those of you who are historically curious, you're wondering if you'll get to see Billy Graham or R.C. Sproul or Wycliffe or the Wesleys. But let me ask you this. Keep, keep thinking about that. Obviously, we long to be with Jesus and long to see his face, to gaze upon him and return the embrace that is ours to give because he first gave it to us. But who are you longing to celebrate with? Because we are a desiring people. We're not first a thinking people. We're not first a cognitive people. We're not brains on toothpicks. We're a desiring people. We're motivated by what we love. So as you dream, are you dreaming about sharing eternity with the people to your left and the people to your right? You can look, it's okay. your brothers and sisters right here at this church being with you at the finish line. These people right here who um, struggle with belief and disbelief and grace and forgiveness and longing and living are these people here central to your celebration on that great day. So what would it mean for Paul's words here about loving and longing for a crown that we will have as a church to not just be a metaphor or an ideal, but be the thing that is animating our lives here at this church, that we are so excited about sharing the finish line with everyone here in this room that we want to long for that day and begin to experience that life of the new heaven and new earth and the kingdom now. What does that do to disrupt our worlds? And what does that do to disrupt our ideals? And what does it mean to be intimately knit with a people whose bonds we share more poignantly than DNA? 
whose lives are ours because of the life that we have in Jesus. What does it mean then to love and long not only for Jesus, but for the people that are seated right here in this little room, in this little town, on this little speck of history in Carrollton, Texas? Can you look to your left or can you look to your right and envision the gladness of a race well run and a life now begun with these people and not just the people that you already like, but the people you don't know that well. And yet in Jesus, you've been called family. Why or why not? What does it look like to imagine that? And if we're a people of the resurrection, right? If we're a people, as we talked about last week, of our citizenship of of heaven, our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, our future defining our present, then dear beloved friends in Jesus, why is it that we just sort of casually walk past one another? Why is it that relationships are hard to form and sustain and maintain? Can I ask you, what does it mean for you to be praying for your brothers and sisters and then working for their redemption as you do for your own? How do we do all of this? It is genuine love. This command has to be spurred by love. It has to be love for Jesus and love for people is what propels us to stand firm and be steadfast together. How, though, do we do that? Look at what Paul says. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my my big communal crown, stand firm thus In the Lord, my beloved. It's thus in the Lord. This is the entryway into how this all happens. This word thus is our key. Um, One of these things that we've seen so far in Paul's letter is that we are ready to stand with Christ and one another and share in Christ's sufferings. This is what Paul says. Be on the ready. Be of one mind. Stand together and be a human shield against all of the assaults the world is going to throw at you. We've also seen that we anticipate the resurrection. But what Paul also means here is that everything we are going to see from this point out in the letter is how we stand steadfast as a one people together in the Lord. This is the thus. This is the follow these commands. These final exhortations. We are going to agree in the Lord. Be one. We are going to help our friends in the church. And then we are going to pray and practice Christ-like virtues that we're going to talk about more next week. And the wellspring, the source of all these commands, all of these how-tos is here in the text. It is in the Lord. Jesus began a good work in you, Paul says in Philippians 1.6. If you are in Christ, he simply is not done with you. 
Because we are in the Lord, we can find our deepest and fullest and most satisfying joy in Him because joy is the anchor. It is the ballast of our souls that no matter what is coming over the bow of the ship in this day and age, whether it is triumph or whether it is tragedy, the joy that we have in Jesus is what keeps us anchored in Him and keeps us afloat in the world because we know that this world is not all there is and that this world and all that happens to us does not define us. Jesus defines us. You can know that Jesus has gone before you and kept these commands perfectly for you. You can know that Jesus empowers you by his spirit to live and love as he does. So how then do we stand firm? We stand firm because the Lord that loves us has bound himself to us by faith. And we must stand firm. Why? Because we have been commanded to. And Jesus says, those who love him keep his commandments. Love can do no other. If you think that this is optional to dream and desire and love and live in this way, one must pause to ask if there is really love for Jesus at the bottom of one's heart. If you think that what Jesus is saying is an optional thing for you or just preacher talk or a good Sunday ideal, those that love Jesus keep his commandments. You have been empowered to keep his commandments because Jesus has kept them perfectly for you. But dear friends, this is not advanced Christian living. It's basic operating instructions for how we as the church are to be the people of God. There's a freedom that comes from knowing that you have the smile of heaven. And we don't have to posture or perform for one another. I don't have to try to impress you. You don't have to try to impress me. We don't have to put on our happiest church face and look like we have it all together. Because of who we are in Jesus, it sets us free in order to live as the people of God, in order to love as the people of God. Yes, we may mess it up. Yes, grace is a thing. Now, for those of you that watched American Idol back in its heyday, or whatever its mutant incarnation is presently now on whatever channel it's on. You remember that one of the central tenets of the show was that singers would get up and sing shortened versions of songs, and the judges would critique it and pick it apart, and they knew that if they missed one note or flubbed one line or weren't the best performance, they could risk their dreams ending and going home, right? And there was an angry British guy on there that would yell at them a lot. Another person obsessed with canines that would talk about dogs a lot, right? You remember the old day? Okay. But then something would happen when the winner was crowned. They'd get to sing again. All of a sudden, the pressure was off. They could sing with reckless abandon. They could miss a line. They could cry. They could hit notes they never knew they had. They could just fall apart in the middle of the song, let the band carry them. Do you know why? Because they'd already won. They'd already won. The confetti was falling. 
The crowd was cheering and they had already won. See, before you think that this text puts a crushing burden on the church, you have to remember that this text is envisioning that winner on that night of that singing competition. You've already won. You have the smile of heaven. You have the yes and the amen of Jesus. You have the well done, good and faithful servant. So now because you have all that, live out of the reality of that. Sing like you've already won. Live like you've already won. You want to know how you be steadfast? Starts there. If your steadfastness looks like getting up the energy to go to yet one more PTA meeting or volunteer for yet one more committee you don't want to be on, won't last. It'll crush you. But if your steadfastness comes because of the sheer delight of having already won and getting just to live in the goodness of God's grace, things can change. Here's the second thing. Be one. So earlier in the letter, we saw that Paul was telling people to stand side by side. And now our second principle is because of the security we have in Christ, because of the steadfastness that we are going to enjoy and have been called to because we've won. Agree in the Lord. Be one and agree in the Lord. You maintain unity through humility. Others are more important and more significant than you. It is your life that you offer for theirs. That is the way it works. It is that way in your family with your kids. It's that way with your spouse. It's that way with your neighbors. It's that way with your coworkers. It's that way with your people that are seated to your left and to your right. It is your life for theirs. Here we have it. Aodia. And Syntyche. There's a stress point that has come in their relationship. These two women, these co-laborers with Paul in the gospel. And likely these women have a place of prominence in the congregation. So much so that when this letter is read and when their names are mentioned, everyone's going to kind of go, ooh, yeah, that's a pretty big thing. Right? It's not going to be like that weird, you know, thing where preachers kind of say what's going on, but they don't say what's going on. I don't do that, by the way. I think that's gross. Um, but I've heard stories. Some of you have shared stories. Pastor's opinion hour in place of a sermon. We don't know what they're disagreeing about. We have no idea who these women are in relationship to the church. But we know that the dispute has spilled over into the life of the church. So let's see how Paul navigated this potentially catastrophic situation. First of all, Paul named these women publicly. Now, you might think that's really rude. But in Paul's day and age, if you were to speak of a situation without naming the person, it was a, it was a great insult, right? It forced them into shame of anonymity, Here's the next thing that he does. He honors them by using the word in Greek that translates, I entreat. Now, we know that Paul has the authority from Jesus to command, right? Because he's an apostle, because he's been empowered thus by Jesus, Paul can say, I command, and it is as if the words have come straight from Jesus' mouth. But he doesn't, does he? 
He goes for persuasion, not for power. He says, I entreat. I entreat. But to these close friends, he opts for persuasion rather than injunction. Entreat, appeal, persuade, rather than command. These are Paul giving these women dignity and status as his friends to hear his heart, not just his orders. Do you see that? Look at what else he does. He entreats them each individually. He is not interested in assigning or finding fault or blame. I entreat Aodia. I entreat Syntyche. Be of one mind. Be of one mind. He's asking them to be reconciled. Remember, Paul, when Paul exhorted the whole church to be who they are because they share Christ's mind, that's what he's doing again here. Be one because you're already one in Christ. The Greek phrase that underlies here literally means the same thing, think in the Lord. It doesn't matter who's right, who's wrong, who started it, who bears the lion's share of the blame. But because they are in the Lord, they should allow that thing to be the prominent thing in their lives. Now, I'm going to talk about a a movie that just came out that I saw on opening night. And I'm not going to talk about anything that's not already been shown in previews, lest anyone think that I'm unfairly giving spoilers. We have that on tape, too, just so we're clear. In this particular movie, a certain captain of, say, America (laughs) and a certain man made of metal, let's say iron, had been at odds with one another. And one of the things that we see in the movie is they're being reconciled. For all the joy that is this movie, and by the way, it was a really fun movie. One of the most powerful components of it was the relational stories that were told. And one of the most powerful things that you could see was the breaking of tension and the unity that came from those that had been at odds being being at peace. For us as the church, it's not just um, the uh, it's not just the issue of a greater enemy that unites us. It's the greater love of a savior. Because at some point, the enemy is fully and finally vanquished. Right? At some point, the enemy is fully and finally vanquished. But there's still always going to be a third party in play. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one whose love and life animates us and unites us. Jesus is the one that is the reason we're together in the first place. And it's his love coursing through us that enables us to see one another and be reconciled to one another because that's what he's done for us. No relationship is beyond restoration because we are in Christ first. If you are in Christ, no relationship is beyond restoration. No relationship is beyond reconciliation. 
And because reconciliation is always preeminent, always primary, always our aim and goal, Paul now turns to a third command. Be helpful in the gospel. Be helpful in the gospel. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here's Paul's Paul's final, um, final command, be helpful. And it's to another leader in the church whom he calls true companion. And the request is simple, help. And we can see that there is genuine wisdom in this companion and that Paul trusts that they will be able to help restore these sisters' oneness in Christ. Problems in the church are never just between individuals. We are a community together and what hurts part of us hurts all of us. So these women have been with Paul in the gospel. The church has leaders that have labored with them. And this true companion or genuine yoke fellow has pulled his own weight in the life and ministry of the church. And they are all together alongside of Clement and too many others to name that have been vital in the life and mission of the church. And Paul is so confident in their standing. He says, I know their names are written in the book of life. And we are together and we are a people And these co-workers in the church are there because God has graciously gathered them all together in one place. The glue that holds them together is the love for God that they have been shown in Christ. And because of Jesus, they can have confidence that their names have been written in the book of life as well. We are together. These are our people. We have to bridge our divides and figure it out. And by the way, it may not be outright conflict. It may be just sheer apathy. Isn't Isn't that true? Conflict comes when I care too much about the wrong things. Apathy comes when I've just given up caring. In his book, Jesus Outside the Line, Scott Sauls writes this. He says, what matters more to us, that we successfully put others in their place or that we are known to love well? That we win culture wars with carefully constructed arguments and political power plays or that we win hearts with humility, truth, and love? God have mercy on us if we do not love well Because all that matters to us is being right and winning arguments. Truth and love can go together. Truth and love must go well together. See, the way that um, relational fractures are healed is not by not saying true things. And nor is it not by just saying um, ear-pleasing things. It's by truth and love going together. And I know I've said a version of this phrase before, but then I saw another prominent preacher say this phrase a little bit more meat on the bones, and I thought I would share it. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. 
God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical and unconditional commitment to us that he's going to stick with us even in the midst of who we are. So let me ask you this. Who is it in your life that you can help by loving in this way? Who needs to be loved in this way? Who in your life is the hardest person to love? And can we just dispense with the abstractions for a second? Like, if if I really mean it, that look to your left, look to your right, are you envisioning these people right in here being with you at the finish line? Like, let's just be real for a second. I know that we're on some podcast somewhere, and somebody in Indonesia may be listening to this, and that's cool. Look to your left and look to your right. But for us, who is the hardest person to love in here? Don't say me. I mean, you can, but just don't all say it at once. Thank you. (laughs) If the hardest person in your life to love is in the church, then because you are together in Christ, who are you waiting on to make the first move to move towards them in love? Maybe Jesus is calling you to be the helper in someone else's life. And what about those outside the church? What about those who aren't in Christ? Maybe not yet. How are you going to be the ambassador of Jesus for them? Are you going to be telling them what a wretched sinner they are? Or is it going to be by showing them how loved by the Savior they are? Are we marked as a people who tenderly appeal to truthfulness? Because Jesus has tenderly and lovingly appealed to us. Friends, I need help to see how much I have been loved so that I might be able to love in that way. So do you. I need help being reconciled because I need help dreaming about celebrating before the throne with the toughest people around me that I struggle to love. And so do you. But you know why it's worth it? Because Jesus has already won the victory. The confetti is falling. And he's handed the mic to us. And say, sing the song. It's okay if you miss the notes. It's okay if you mess it up. It's okay if you don't remember the words. Sing because you've won. Love because you've been won.